Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is a CBC podcast. The following episode contains references to suicide and other difficult subject matter. So please take care. After four years, do you want to still like misjudging me? No, you can't because I'm still here. I didn't run away. Hi, is this Alma? Speaking. Hi, how are you? Thanks for doing this. This is Alma Alikovic, a real estate agent from Edmonton, Alberta. Alma visited Nadia Atwi on December 6th, 2017, just two days before she went missing. This is at the house that she was in when she disappeared? That's the same house, yeah. I was there on Wednesday evening, and apparently she disappeared on Friday. So it was shocking. I asked Alma if anything in particular stood out to her about Nadia during her December 6th visit. So I went there in the evening. Her husband wasn't home. It was just her mother-in-law and her little guy and herself. But when I came to see her, I was really surprised how much weight she lost. And I was like, Nadia, you look great. How did you do it? Did you go on a diet? And she just smiled and she thanked me. So we kind of sat down in the living room with her mother-in-law and we were just uh, talking about ordinary things. The little boy was there, he was all over her, you know, kissing her and she was kissing him. I brought him a toy and some candies and stuff like that, right? She was a very, very loving mother. Like, honestly, she was so gentle with her boy and like... They sit and drink coffee like this for a while. And it all seems ordinary to Alma, until the very end of the evening. Um, when I was leaving, like she came to, to see me off to the entry door, and she hugged me, and she whispered in my ear, I love you, Alma. That's what she said, and I said, I love you, Nadia, I love you too, Nadia. And, you know, we hugged and, and said goodbye, and I never, ever in a million years, even you know, think or, or imagine that would be the last time I saw her. She always did that? Or was that a new thing? When she hugged me, it was a bit strange, to be honest with you. That's how I felt. She whispered in my ear, like she didn't want her mother-in-law to hear it. But that's the impression I had, right, when it happened. I'm David Ridgen, and welcome to The Next Call. Episode 3, In the Case of Nadia Atwi. They were buying a house, so it was mostly Nadia going out with me, viewing properties. and. Uh... Alma says she first met Nadia and Ali Fneish, Nadia's husband, in the early summer of 2017, when they were looking to buy a home on the northwest side of Edmonton. Alma says she mainly worked with Nadia during the purchasing process, 
because Ali was still away working in Yellowknife in northern Canada. So did you ever talk to Ali in any depth or any for any length of time? Yeah, he was very nice to me, honestly. But I did like sense some tension between them during the property inspection because he was a bit, um, maybe a little bit, um, I cannot say rude, but kind of distanced and a bit angry or whatever. And you know what? I didn't pay attention to it. I mean, they were a couple, you know, couple argue and you know. But I have to admit that she was like in the presence of her husband or her mother-in-law, she was very quiet. And then after, when Nadia went missing, what happened? Did you interact with Ali at all or any of the family members after uh, that? Yes, actually, I called Ali right away. I, he didn't pick up the phone, but he did call me back, right? Like, I couldn't believe. And I honestly, I thought, you know, this is she's missing, but she's going to be found for sure, right? So, I mean, he was pleasant with me. He did uh, kind of explain the situation to me, like what happened the night before and how did that happen and, uh, you know. So what were the details of what he said happened the night before? You remember what he told you? He said that, uh, yes, actually, I do remember. He said that the night before he was on his computer and Nadia was sleeping in the bedroom and he said around, uh, I think it was five o'clock that he said, she came to him and she said, uh, why don't you come to bed? So he told her, you know, I'm almost done now, I'll, I'll be right there. When Alma says five o'clock here, she means five o'clock in the morning. So he said he came to the bedroom, he fell asleep. He couldn't sleep right away. He heard her, you know, getting up and getting ready for work, right? And then she left. Okay, and did he mention or did you hear anything about them having an argument or anything like that the night before? No, he just said that Nadia came to his room around, I believe, 5 o'clock. And did he take you step by step through all those details, or did you ask him at every point, okay, and then what happened? Were you querying him, or did he just start from the beginning? And No, honestly, like, I, I didn't play a detective, you know, and just, I was kind of shocked. I phoned as a friend, so, and this is the story that he told me, and I just said, this is terrible, I hope. You guys going to find her and basically, no, I didn't ask questions. Okay, so he just volunteered all of those details to you? That's right, yeah. Did police ever talk to you about anything? Mm-mm. They never did. Never did? So you never talked to police about the case or what, what Ali told you or anything like that? No, no. Nobody has ever called me or uh, asked me any questions, no. I asked Alma if she can remember anything else about Nadia's demeanor the last time she saw her. It was a dramatic change, honestly. Like, usually you don't tell people or you lost so much weight. But I thought me and her were kind of close, right? So I said, Nadia, you look amazing. Honestly, I was shocked. One of Nadia's family members told me that Nadia had lost around 80 pounds, about 32 kilograms, in the six months before she went missing. I wonder if this change in Nadia's appearance was due to external pressure or if it is an indication of something else. And did the mother-in-law ever engage with anybody when you were over there or whenever you were with Nadia or with Ali? No, she would, uh, yeah, she didn't speak English, so she would be kind of speaking in, in Arabic and then Nadia would translate. She was present the whole time. She would be just kind of observing, you know, looking. 
Ali's mother would be a good candidate for me to somehow try to speak to, since she seems to have been omnipresent, at least by Alma's account. But she's difficult to track down between staying in Canada and her hometown in Lebanon. The phone number I have for her was not in service, and she doesn't appear to have a permanent one. Back to Alma's last moments with Nadia. She did look a bit... I don't know how to uh, describe it in English, but I'm going to describe how I felt. Like, I had some impression that she was carrying some sadness inside, right? She did smile, but uh, I kind of sense that there is something in in her, like some, some kind of... I don't know. Maybe I was wrong. Whether this sadness Alma says she felt coming from Nadia was misconstrued or something actually there is unknown. And while I'm getting a clearer picture of Nadia in the final moments before she disappeared, I need more. I need to speak to her husband, Ali. They want to put that crime on me no matter, even uh, I have nothing to do with her disappearance, but like, They wanted to blame me for her disappearance, no matter what. Boston Recorder, emergency 510. My wife's been shot, I've been shot. One of the most sensational stories in Boston's history, a white suburban couple shot in the heart of the city, followed by a massive manhunt for the black man who did it. Now the chase is on. You can't make this shit up. Oh, but they did make it up. This is a true story. Boston Globe and HBO Documentary Films present Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Chuck and Carol Stewart shoot. Listen to Murder in Boston on your favorite podcast app. Okay, I'm going to try to call Ali on WhatsApp. See what happens here. I need to reach Ali to get his side of the story but his number didn't seem to work when I dialed it. Then I remember something Sawa told me, that Ali would sometimes use Nadia's phone or SIM card. I dial Nadia's phone number, but the call doesn't go through, so I decide to try the number one more time using WhatsApp instead. Hello? Hi, is that Ali? Yeah. Nice to talk to you, thanks. For nearly a year, my investigation into Nadia's disappearance circled around the notion of hearing eventually from her husband Ali, and now he wastes no time telling me what he says Nadia's family and the public have been accusing him of from the beginning, Nadia's disappearance. Like, to be honest with you, I tried to help first the police with everything I have, but then, like, at some point, her family came and... The accusation for me murdering my wife and hiding her body, you know, I didn't accept it. So, have you ever told them that you, did you ever say I have nothing to do with Nadia's disappearance? Have you ever told them that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I did lots and even like I voluntarily helped the police lots. I voluntarily gave all my uh, devices, phone, computer. I have a dash camera in the car, so the police can know that I have nothing to do involving that. I have been a policeman before. I work in like some uh, offices, like investigation cases. And I kind of 
Ali says he was a police officer in Lebanon, and since we're recent Facebook friends, I can see photos of him there wearing what looks like various military-looking outfits. As I said to the police before, no matter what you dig in my history, when I know myself I didn't do anything, I'm just ahead of you, right, like in this investigation. Because you're going to keep digging in me. And I know that, like, and that's the right of the police. You keep looking for evidence from any side they think it's suspected. But for me, myself, I know that I'm ahead of the police because, like, I know it wasn't me. That's in the first place. Or I have nothing to do involving this missing. Anyway, from- Thinking about timeline details, I ask Ali to walk me through his version of the day Nadia went missing and the night before. It's the evening of December 7th, and Nadia and Ali's mother have just returned from a trip to the drugstore. And they came back around like 10 at night or something. During that time, around like 6 p.m., I went to my office and my house, and I started applying for citizenship, Canadian citizenship. And it takes a long time to fill up those papers. So I was like around 6 p.m., 7 p.m., filling up those documents. Uh, She came up with the kid at uh, around like 11.30, 12-ish. She put him on the bed. She slept beside him and she was uh, crying. And uh, I was looking, I asked her why you're crying and she didn't answer. And then she slept. Then she woke up around like three in the morning. She came into my office. She stand up by the door and she was asking me till how long we're gonna keep like uh, somehow separated inside the house, you know, because like... Ali tells me that the argument he had with Nadia the night before she went missing was about the separation in their marriage and that Nadia wanted to start getting closer again Talk of marriage trouble can often take people past their breaking point, and I ask Ali about that. Did any of the arguments that you might have had with her ever get physical? Were you ever physical with Nadia if you ever argued with her, or was it just verbal? No, no. As I told you, I'm a former policeman in my country, and I'm very aware of documenting things. I'm very popular with the courts and... uh, prosecutors. I grew up with judges, so uh, I'm very aware of not putting myself behind the bars of any aggressive or any like any thoughts I have. I don't translate my thoughts or my words into a harmful action. Ali says that he was not physically abusive towards Nadia. I focused on the relationship leading up to her disappearance. Because, like, during that time, December, she went back to problems and stuff. And I was like, I don't assault her, I don't yell at her. But, like, when there is a conflict between you and the person, you don't do sex anymore, you know? Like, I was, like, away of that sexual activities because, like, her mental issue wasn't very good. And for me, like myself, I never touch her when she is mentally not good. I feel myself like a bad person if I do that. Anyway, she was arguing about that, and I told her, like, yeah, when things is better, we can we can back together. But we used to sleep on the same bed. 
And so you sometimes shared the bed with her when you were divorced or only this time or? No, no, when we get divorced, no. There is a, a ceremony like, uh, like temporary divorce. Ali explains that his Islamic divorce from Nadia was temporary, with a 90-day period in which the couple can attempt to reconcile. During this period in April of 2017, he says that Nadia took their son Mohammed and went to stay with her parents. Text messages that I have seen between Nadia and her parents provide another piece to this story. In April, Nadia was admitted to the hospital due to a bipolar episode. She says Ali brought Muhammad for a visit and we fought again. I told him to leave because he kept talking about divorce. And every time I see him I get stressed, but I want to see Muhammad. Still, Ali says Nadia wanted to get back together. Back to Ali's description of the morning of Nadia's disappearance. So I went around five in the morning, I finished my documents and I went to bed. And when I went to bed, after like five minutes, she started to say something I couldn't understand, like in a different, in a weird language. I woke her up and I asked her what you're saying. She said like, I didn't say anything and maybe I was just dreaming. And I said, okay. And then I just fell to sleep. I was hugging her and I fell to sleep. I woke up 6.30 in the morning. There was an alarm, right? I woke up on her alarm. She woke up 6.30 in the morning to get ready. So when the alarm rang, I wake up, but I didn't open my eyes. But I felt her wearing her clothes, right? Like she's putting clothes on. And when she went downstairs, I just passed out again. I didn't talk to her in the morning or anything. Because like I was just tired and I was like one hour of sleep or one and a half hour of sleep. And then she went down and when she went down, I, I felt asleep again. And I woke up again like on the door knocking around seven. And when she went down, I find her mom on the door. She said, where, where she is, we are already late. And so I thought like she's putting a laundry. So I went downstairs. My mom used to live, uh, used to sleep in the basement. So I looked in the laundry. I didn't find her. I asked my mom. I wake her up. She said like, no. I went to the backyard. I didn't find her. I went back up to the washrooms. I didn't find her. But when I went to the garage and I didn't find her vehicle, then I told her mom that she might left to the school. And I started to call her. She didn't answer. And I started messaging her. She didn't answer. And then her mother came and started yelling at me, like accusing me for her disappearance right away. And I was like, why are you, why are you saying that? Like, she, like, you see the car is not there. Like, why are you saying that she's disappeared? Like, why are you saying so? Ali says that he removed Sawa from the house because she was yelling and his son was asleep. So after that, I kept like texting Nadia, calling her, calling her. She didn't answer me. Then around like after 8.30, I thought like she would be now at school. So anyway, uh, I went back to sleep. I slept for one hour or two hours and I wake up like around 10 
I called my friend to pick me up to her school because like we have one car and I work delivery on this car, pizza delivery. Sawa denies saying Nadia had disappeared, but even if she had, is it odd that Ali would go back to bed after seeing Sawa, not hearing from Nadia, and the car being gone when he needed it for pizza delivery? So I went to the school and I didn't find my car in the parking lot because like, I felt like I could take the car with my spare keys, right? And so when you called your friend, did you say, hi friend, Nadia's missing, come to the school with me? Or did you say, hi friend, I need my car, can you take me to the school? Do you remember? Yeah, I told him like to come and pick me up to the school. Like, as example, if I think she's missing, why would I go to school, right? I would call the police. The friend who drove Ali that morning is Jihad Ajour. Who was that that drove you? My friend at that time, uh, he's a friend, like a friend of me. Okay. And so- I wonder if Ali said anything on the drive to the school. To try to find out, I've attempted to reach out to Jihad on Facebook, but he does not respond. Back to Ali, who is at this point in the parking lot of the Albuquerque Academy, looking for the car. He does not speak to Sawa. I went, I didn't find the car, so I had to go inside. I had to go inside and I asked about Nadia. They told me uh, that uh, she's not there, she didn't show up today and then like at this moment i called the police right away and report for missing person because like i reported to the police before a couple times about her mental issue right because she starts screaming and yelling and breaking things and i to be honest with you i'm a previous policeman so i just wanted to protect myself if somebody uh, somebody injured himself so not to be blamed on you know what i mean right Ali's version suggests that he reported Nadia missing at around midday, almost immediately after learning that she did not show up to work. Ali also seems to suggest that based on his policing experience, he understood that he would be a prime suspect if Nadia had in fact gone missing, so he went to the police as soon as he could to get ahead of it. So you said that there were some other occasions she left, and I read about that as well. Did you report her missing on those occasions as well, or how long did it take before you you did that? Uh, Yeah, like uh, in the beginning, I used to call her uh, family right away, right? Oh, I see. Yeah, her family used to, it's okay, it's fine, she used to do that, uh, take it care, take easy, but I I remember I reported her once in, I think in the beginning of 2017, like around January, February. Oh, okay. And how many times would you say that when you knew Nadia that she left home sort of without telling you where she was going? Um, Maybe six or seven times. Okay. Before marrying Ali, Nadia lived with her mother and father. Sawa tells me that when Nadia lived with her, she left home on two occasions, careful to stress that Nadia never ran away. Sawa says on those occasions, Nadia would check in with them. On the first occasion, Nadia drove to Calgary and was away for most of the day. She called her father on the way and said she needed the drive. She returned with sweets from her favorite Lebanese bakery. 
On the second occasion, she drove to Gibbons, a small town a short drive northeast of Edmonton. Again, she called her father on the way, and she returned home shortly thereafter. After Nadia moved in with Ali, Sawa says that she only knows of one occasion when Nadia left. According to Sawa, on that occasion, Ali took Nadia's car keys after he and Nadia had had an argument. So Nadia walked on her own around Edmonton. Ali called Sawa and asked her to help him search for Nadia. Uh, she was missing, and uh, she was missing for six, seven hours. Then she went by herself to the police station, or I don't know, like... Has been... After a couple of hours, they received a call from the local police station where Nadia had gone on her own and was waiting to be picked up. Where is she going? Because sometimes, like, she went in the middle of the night, she drives to Red Deer, man, like... According to our research, at no time did Nadia's family report her missing to police, but it seems Ali did. As Edmonton police have declined involvement in my investigation, I'm unable to verify whether or not Nadia was ever reported missing prior to her disappearance, or by whom. So that's why I use always to call the police and to call ambulances, just to make sure that I don't get uh, nobody point at me that I'm doing something bad. Anyway, before, I just want to mention to you, before that event, that event happened on a Friday. On Sunday, they have a party at school, like ceremony or something. And she was asking me before that couple days that she can't provide work at that location anymore. She's, she's tired. Uh, I talked to the school manager and he told me, oh, no, we can't do that. There is a penalty and stuff. And I told him that she have a mental issue and she can't work. She's begging me every day to talk to you that she can't work anymore. When I talked to him, he wasn't very understanding of the situation. And I told her, like, you see, like, we can't do nothing. And I was like encouraging her to teach, right? To work with her education. I have reached out to Principal Usama, the head of Nadia's school, and he does not recall ever having this conversation with Ali. He is also not aware of any similar conversations Ali could have had with Nadia's colleagues. And Principal Usama says that there were no signs of Nadia considering leaving. So do you think the principal of the school was aware of Nadia not being happy there? Yeah, he was. At that time before she disappeared, just in the month or so before she disappeared, the relationship doesn't sound like it was so smooth. Do you think that if Nadia hadn't disappeared that you guys would have gotten closer? Do you feel like you were getting closer at the time she disappeared? Yeah, for sure. So then what happened after you reported her missing? Did you go tell Sawa? Yeah, after I reported her missing, uh, the police told me that uh, we can't uh, issue them missing warning unless like, there is a 24 hours of her being missing. So I went and I rent a car like, because I had to work and I didn't know like if she's driving or not driving or whatever happened. I didn't know. Anyway, like I went and I rent a car and uh, I went to my work and the police called me around. At 10 p.m., saying that they locate her vehicle in Rundle Park and they move it to the police compound. Okay, and then so the next day you were asked to come in and talk to them? 
So then the next day, I went to the police compound to take the car. And then uh, they asked me to stay, to sit down for a bit. And then after 10 minutes, two detectives showed up and asked me to go and meet them at the police station because they didn't have an arrest warranty or anything to, to take me in their vehicle. So I took a taxi and I met them and they started to investigate with me about everything, like timelines and everything, investigation. And then they, so did they just release you after interviewing you a couple of times or? Actually, like, uh, they released me, but I was under surveillance, right? Like I was like a very, very high surveillance. I could tell myself, right? Like even my phone, like uh, I lose the battery in my phone, they will like, when I open it, I find like hundreds of missed calls uh, asking me not to turn off my phone. And I don't know, like somehow like on my phone GPS, because I gave them my phones as well, right? Like, so as a volunteer lead, they asked me to give them my phone, like to check on uh, my computers and um, uh, every all digital equipments I have. So I give them everything, right? Like I was very honest and like I wanted to find her too. I want to try for more concrete evidence. As her husband, Ali was granted what sounds like at least some access to the police investigation. Maybe he can shed some light on a few details. The dash camera video I first heard about from Nadia's cousin Adele is a good place to start. You know, like she went in the ditch, a little bit in the ditch, right? And the vehicle stopped because like there was a plenty of bushes preventing the vehicle like to proceed. And I have the dash camera video. It shows like how she's driving critical and she's like passing some red lights. Uh, I can help you with that if you want like one day. Do you ha- actually have the video? Yeah, yeah, I have a copy of them. Oh, okay. I would love to get a copy of that to see, because it'd be interesting to see exactly how she was driving. Ali promises to send it to me, but later he messages that he will not be sending me anything, citing police protocol as his reasoning. So we continue with Ali's recollection of it. The thing is, the, the video showed the whole thing from the house, like from the time she started going from the house, she go to the Randall Park, to the same spot she put the car, she get outside the Randall Park, she go do a loop on Anthony Handy, she come back to the park, and before that place where they find the car, and like 20 meters, the camera just stopped, or there's no more videos. And the first video after this is when the police have the camera, and they turn it on inside the vehicle. Anthony Hende Drive is a 78-kilometer highway that circles around Edmonton. It is also the route that Nadia and Sawa often took to the school each morning. In examining the geography, Anthony Hende is not a likely route to Sawa's home, and in my opinion is an inefficient way to get to or from Rundle Park. But according to Ali's memory of the dashcam video, the car first navigates to Rundle Park, then gets on the highway and circles back to the far entrance of the park, where it is found 20 meters away from where the dash cam turns off. So if it was Nadia behind the wheel, she was probably not on her way to pick up Salwa. 
and the choice to get on the highway could suggest travel toward the school, but obviously something changed. And can you see Nadia? Do we know it's Nadia driving the car? That's the thing, no, because it's dash camera showing like... Uh, but at some point there is like a harsh voice. I know it's her voice when she gets very mad or disoriented. And I hear like at some point the police focus on that voice inside of in the investigations around that voice. And they made me like hear it like hundred times just to confirm if that was Nadia or not. But I could say like it was Nadia and uh, she was uh, responding on the messages I'm getting, but she wasn't responding like on the text. She was responding verbally, right? Without like, I don't know if she's reading my messages, but she was like, every time maybe she see my name calling her or texting her, she say like, like, fuck off or something, you know, fuck you. Oh, so you, you could hear her in the car responding to you? Responding verbally, you know, like responding verbally on my phone. You know, like when somebody calling you, you don't answer, but you just say something. Angry and cursing under her breath. Ali's description of a very harsh voice reminds me of Adele's account of the voice with some key differences. Adele said it was more like a cough and that he and the other members of Nadia's family agreed that it sounded nothing like Nadia. But Ali frames it that he recognized this as Nadia's disoriented voice. So there is no real proof that she was actually driving that car. Yeah, that's for the police, huh? Right. I'm curious about Ali's theories about Nadia's disappearance. This is the first theory that she went in the river. Like, the less percentage. One of highest percentage theory that she's been disoriented, like after the impact, she become disoriented and uh, she walked, I believe she walked into High Ridge Park and uh, during the misoriented situation that she's in, uh, she maybe asked somebody for help and uh, those people abused her. Because my wife become very dominated, very submissive. I don't know how, if you understand that, but like, she likes to take orders. I hate that. Like, she become literally doesn't do nothing unless you tell her what she do. And she become like, she doesn't know what to do. If you don't tell her, like, to go to the washroom, she won't go. Is it possible Nadia was injured, stumbled for help, and was taken by a third party? Yes, but... I've not seen any physical evidence linking Nadia to Hermitage Park or any other location outside of the car and its immediate vicinity. It's about a 45-minute walk from where the car was found to Hermitage. Was there any evidence that Nadia had used her credit cards or anything, or her phone or anything afterwards? No, her phone has been found in the car. The police have it for a while and then they gave it to me. I tried to open it, like, I couldn't open it, the police had to reset it. I didn't have the password for Nadia. I tried to reset it, but I don't believe that there is anything suspicious. I have her email that was on a computer. I have her email address. I have her Facebook right now, like, and I never posted anything against anybody on it. I never used it for personal use, just to track. 
I did change the password just to know like if she someday like would try to log in, right? Like then she have to change her own password. Ali says he never posted anything on Nadia's account, but he did use his own a few times to lash out at Nadia's family and friends, which fueled accusations from onlookers. I'm happy. I'm not happy that my wife is missing, but I'm a little bit like okay with it to happen in Canada, and there is a fair judgment for everybody. Like if I'm guilty, yeah, I deserve. Anybody guilty for this, like deserve a prison, right? I'm not saying anything, but like I'm not that one that you're looking for. I'm looking for my wife, but you don't want me to. Like this is affect my ability to look after her. Even like people in the street, like they call me murder. Sometimes people, I think, need you to say publicly that you had nothing to do with it, and that they need you to say it over and over again. I think that sometimes that helps. Because like after four years, do you want to still like misjudging me? No, you can't because I'm still here. I didn't run away, right? I didn't. I could like take my kid and go to Europe or go to America or go anywhere uh, or go back to my country. But I didn't do that. I'm still here. I'm facing the thing over here. I asked Ali if there was any indication that Nadia was feeling suicidal. I guess I don't know how close you were in terms of talking about emotions and feelings like that uh, sometimes people never talk about these things like if they want to hurt themselves or but did you ever hear her say that she wanted to hurt herself or, or end her life well Nadia she was bipolar yeah she she always like hear things and talk about things like and that was the issue with me too like uh, she could start and talking about things and you don't know exactly uh, like keep talking about things non-end, right? Like, she stay awake for a week, man, like, and she doesn't sleep. Sawa has been able to provide some clarity surrounding questions about Nadia's mental health. She messages me that an Edmonton police constable apparently told her that police reviewed Nadia's medical records, and the records did not indicate signs of suicidal behavior. But without assistance from police, I cannot verify this. Do you think she would ever want to leave your son, Mohammed? No, no. But like, you're judging, you're now asking a question based on a judgment with a normal person, but you never saw her like disoriented to, right. to make this question. To me, not a straightforward answer. To my knowledge, Alif Naish has never been asked outright if he had anything to do with Nadia's disappearance despite the accusations and speculation and questions about his character. So, I give him the chance. So then, did you, Ali, have anything to do with the disappearance of Nadia Atwi? For sure not. Not even one, one zero point one percent of that, that thing. I don't care, but the thing I care about that I am ahead of you, of the police, of her parents, of everybody, because I have, and I know myself 100%, I have nothing 0% related to my missing wife. Where is Nadia Atwi, this kind-hearted person? A mother, a teacher, a relative, and a quiet friend. Another case about someone we would all have liked to have met. Her mother and others I have interviewed suggest that her final months 
appear to be unhappy, uncertain ones. Her case mobilized in a community asking for action in the media and, by appearances at least, getting very little on the ground. While he maintains his innocence, it seems Nadia's husband Ali is focused on by some because of his actions while they were together and in the aftermath of her disappearance. What happened in those early morning hours is a key, but also Nadia's state of mind and sense of self-worth in the relationship as it stood. Who drove the car that morning, and was it Nadia speaking on the dash cam? If somebody heard or saw something the day of Nadia's disappearance or that they think might be important, I'd urge them to come forward. If you have anything else, let me know. Just keep sending me stuff. All that is good information, and I'm not going anywhere, so I'm here to to look at the case. Thank you, Salwa. Okay, okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. you. uh, Even though I never met you from talking, I I don't know, I have a great uh, feeling. Hopefully we will find the solution I hope so too I hope so too and we're we'll do our best thank you very much thank you okay bye bye you have a great day you too bye bye This is the final regularly planned episode in the case of Nadia Adwi. If you have any information regarding her disappearance, the time to come forward is now. The next call is hosted, written, and produced by me, David Ridgen. This series is also produced by Hadil Abdelnabi. Sound design by Evan Kelly. Our senior producer is Cecil Fernandez. Emily Cannell is our digital producer, and our story editor is Chris Oak. Transcriptions by Natalia Ferguson, Virad Mehta, Luke Williams-Perron, and Frankie Fiorini. Evan Agard is our video producer. Ben Shannon designed our artwork. Our cross-promo producer is Amanda Cox. Special thanks to Alex Zabchak and the CBC Reference Library. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Nurani. Our executive director is Leslie Merklinger. If you want to help new listeners discover the show, please rate and review wherever you listen. And if you're looking for more investigations, check out Someone Knows Something. Each season I investigate a different unsolved case, from a five-year-old who goes missing after a family fishing trip, to a mother's decades-long search for justice. Find Someone Knows Something on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Ridgen. We'll be back soon with a new case and the next call. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.